So welcome back again to the second part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. At this part of the programme, I'd like to play some recordings that I made at the recent novena in Knock to a Lady of Knock, which took place um, from the 14th to the 22nd of August. There was a very good lineup of, lineup of speakers who took part, and today we'd like to play two of those talks. Both of the talks were given by women who spoke of their faith. To start with, Carol Coleman spoke on the theme Motherhood, Media and Me. Carol Coleman is an experienced multimedia journalist. Carol is well known to Irish audiences as the former Washington correspondent and education and environment correspondent at RTE. She's she's currently a presenter and reporter on This Week on RTE Radio 1. So we invite you to listen to Carol and then we'll play a short piece of instrumental music to allow some time for reflection. The piece of music we've chosen this morning is from the Maranatha singers and the piece of music is entitled The Worship Song. Friends, the gospel encourages us to, Jesus encourages us to always be witnesses, to be his disciples. We can be disciples in terms of actually proclaiming the word of God within our lives. For example, you could be witnesses by simply being here today. Somebody might have asked you, well, where are you going today? Might have responded, knock. Now that could elicit a number of different types of responses, like fair play, wonderful, don't forget me, to what's taking you to that place. It could be a whole wide range of different uh, reactions to that, but it's a witness nonetheless. We are his disciples and we're called to be witnesses. We're called to explore that in our own lives, whether it's personally being here today, in our homes, where we work, how we live, and indeed publicly, but not by being disciples and calling others to discipleship by maybe being uh, judgmental. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to simply express our faith, express it in the world around us. And we do that courageously, sometimes, as the uh, oft-quoted St. Francis of Assisi is said to have said, uh, always proclaim the gospel and, when necessary, use words. So we're called to do that within our lives. We're called, each of us, to teach in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in these ways, today, we have, as our guest speaker, someone who practices that, within motherhood, within media, and within herself, Carl Coleman. Hello, everybody. What a joy it is for me to be here with you today to help you celebrate this novena to Our Lady of Knock. My talk, as Father Gibbon said, is entitled Motherhood, Media, and Me because first off, I'm a wife and a mother, and secondly, I happen to work in the media, which influences so much of our lives. We now spend several hours a day engaged with media of some sort, be that radio, television, newspaper, or online. Let me tell you a little bit first about my house. I was born in London, grew up in Leitrim, and went to boarding school in Newtown Forbes in Longford. My husband was born in the windy city of Chicago, and our two daughters were born in Russia. 
Every day I thank God for bringing us together as a family, for us four to have come from such disparate places and still to feel like we were always meant to be together is one of the miracles that feeds my faith. So what is my faith? Well, for me, it's a feeling really of contentment and balance inside me. And I think that comes from my belief that there is a power much greater than myself directing everything that happens. But my faith is also about knowing my purpose in all of this. Growing up in a Catholic home in County Leitrim and a convent boarding school in County Longford, I certainly believed that God had a plan for me, although back then I was more into dreams, I think, than plans. And my girlhood dream was that I would travel the world and I'd live in a hotel and I'd never have to cook or clean. I'd just go to interesting places and meet interesting people, explore the world. I loved when I was a child hearing the names of faraway places like Vladivostok and Chattanooga and Galilee. I didn't know then, of course, that I was going to be a journalist and that for a number of years I would literally live out of a suitcase as I traveled across America, Europe, parts of China, Russia, Venezuela, Mexico, Guatemala, to report on people and issues in those places. Then on September the 11th, 2001, I was in Washington, D.C. when terrorists flew airplanes into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon in Washington and a field in Pennsylvania, resulting in the deaths of two and a half thousand people and that certainly tested all our faith. The fact that the attacks were carried out by people who claimed to do it in the name of their faith made it very hard to take. In the following months, I interviewed victims' families, firefighters, politicians, and eventually did come face to face with the then President of the United States, George W. Bush, from my reading that I knew him to be a person of faith so in questioning him, I needed to know how he squared that faith with starting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in retaliation for the attacks. We now know that hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of these military interventions, and from the ruins in Iraq, it appears, emerged Islamic State. So sitting there face to face with the US president, I suppose my girlhood dream of becoming this sort of high-flying traveler was working out. But was that all of God's plan for me? I was working hard to be sure, I was doing a good job, but it all seemed a bit self-serving. So when I'd pray, I would just pretend I was this big empty vessel and ask God to come and fill me with some kind of purpose. And different things started to happen then. Now, as a wife and a mother of two daughters, age 11 and 12, I now know that that bigger role that God had for me was to nurture and love. And I'm sure it's the same for many of you. It just took me an awful lot longer to figure it out. I get chills now when I watch our 12-year-old cooking for the whole family because I know that it's me or my husband or her grandparents that taught her. Or watching my younger girl dance or improvise routines, that gives me so much greater satisfaction than any radio broadcast. Of course, my kids that think that Mammy interviewing people on the radio and speaking at the Basilica is normal, and I like that too. I'm a woman and proud to be a strong role model for them. I do most of my praying now with the children. We thank God for what we have and we pray to be kept safe for another night. 
My go-to woman in a panic has always been Mary. But now, when I pray the Hail Mary, the girls tell me, oh, mum, don't say at the hour of our death. So for now, we've modified it to something a little bit more child-friendly because children don't want to be thinking about their death. They're thinking about the life that's ahead of them. In attempting to pass on my faith, I also realise that our children are growing up in a completely different world where many of their school friends are people of different religions or maybe no religion at all. So we talk about our Muslim friends and how they must be really just like us because in the end of the day, we all believe in this higher power. So to the second word of my title, which is media. I know many of you right now are thinking, well, you don't hear much about faith in the media. The daily news is almost entirely negative. The issues are so difficult. Churches of any denomination really are not particularly popular across the mass media. My 30-year career has been in what's called old media now, newspapers, radio and television. Over those years, I suppose the church, the Catholic church worldwide has received some very critical yet crucial press. I was in college in the late 1980s when clerical abuse issues began to emerge into the public domain. That was bad news, and because it had been kept hidden for so long, it was a very big story. Many of the people who were my college contemporaries at the time went on to become writers and editors and producers, and of course they went on to expose wrongdoing, not just in the church, but across society. To a certain extent, I think that my generation have probably been blinded to the good that happens every day in our churches. After all, it's we, you and I, who are the church, because without all of us, there is no church. Some people will even say to me, oh, those church revelations, they destroyed my faith. I tell them that my faith, my relationship with God, is far above any one institution. It's here. It's inside me. In my 30 years in journalism, I suppose we've also come through huge social change. Many religious schools and hospitals have been replaced by those with pluralist ethos. Last year, the Archbishop of Dublin, Dermot Martin, said on a radio programme that I was working on that it's probably no longer tenable to have maternity hospitals that are, quote, wholly governed by religious. However, he went on to say that there is still a pastoral role to be played in such hospitals where people deal with death and serious illness, the time when, of course, they come looking for God. In the same interview, Archbishop Martin said that he felt it was time for the young generation of church leaders to take over. Where will these come from? Last week, my parish in Leitrim lost one of its three wonderful priests to another very lucky parish. We hope that he'll be replaced, but the trend is pointing to more lay involvement. We are the church, all of us, so if we wanted to continue, we're all going to have to step up. I read a book by an American Catholic that said if just one or two percent more people in parishes took an active role in the parish, it would completely transform it. It said that roughly about seven percent of people are what you'd call highly engaged in their local church or parish. 
Now, my old media has very quickly been superseded by new media. On Facebook and Instagram, anyone can have their own news feed. We were told that social media would bring us all much closer together, build campaigns, even overthrow undemocratic regimes. Now, however, we're seeing that there's downsides too. What you put online stays online long after you wish it wouldn't. Young people are being bullied online by hurtful comments. This all happening at nighttime because social media is 24-7. It never shuts down. People have taken their lives for things that were said or rumors that were put online. 40% of young people were told are talking to strangers online every day. 50% of young people are made to feel that they're just simply not good enough. I do worry for my children and I feel a huge responsibility to try and teach them how to navigate this online world for their benefit while avoiding the dangers. And that is definitely not easy. If this is new media, I feel a little bit safer with my old media. We're all sick of Brexit, but at least I think Irish newspapers, broadcast, uh, broadcasters and papers continue to highlight homelessness, inequalities, in our health and education services and the plight of refugees here and abroad. In fact, I would spend a lot of my time covering the same issues that the church worldwide is concerned with. I know I can do much better instead of simply highlighting problems, which is easy enough to do. I am now trying to seek out people who believe that they have some solutions. Earlier this year, I interviewed the mother of a 21-year-old girl who had taken her life as a result of online and in-person bullying. Instead of shutting herself away and grieving, she's now working flat out every day to try and make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Before I go, let me just tell you a little bit about America, where I spent the first 13 years of this current century. I traveled across the States and I wrote a book at the time called Alleluia America, which was really looking at all the different religious groups that coexist in the United States, evangelical, Mormon, Jewish, Amish, Muslim. I went to see the famous evangelist, Billy Graham, and I met a fella in Kansas who had declared himself to be the Pope. More than us, Americans just love to talk about their faith. I found that young people use their church there as a way to bond, to make friends, to make music. There's always food, there's always some kind of a church outing. Last week on holidays, I attended Mass in a place called Arlington Heights, Illinois. In the bulletin, I spied an ad for holy yoga. Bring your yoga mat and say a few prayers. I like that. There was also a group for men. They could go to the pub in the evening, have a drink, and talk about issues that were important to them, say a few prayers. I hope to see more of that in the future. The church is a place that you go to with family, but I believe that it does need to speak to each group within the family, the young people in particular, otherwise they do tend to become disengaged. We're all on this great journey of life, but each person is at a different stage. What you say to a young person, it, it does not mean the same as to an old person. They see life and death very differently. I also hope in the future to see a more inclusive, church. I noted in America how central the Holy Bible was to the Christian faith. In an Amish home in Pennsylvania, 
it was literally right in the middle of the living room on a pedestal like this, clearly the most important item in the house. And most hotel rooms, for those of you who have traveled there, they have a copy of the Holy Bible in the bedroom. I always found the Bible a bit of a daunting read with all that tiny little print and the, the dense paragraphs. So I keep this pack of cards that I just got in a, in a Christian shop with a line of Bible verse on each of them. The Bible is often called the good news. And being in media, I agree we could do with a lot more of that. So I'm just going to leave you with some good news for you. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Thanks for listening. So now at this point, we'd like to play um, a second talk that we recorded. This one was given by Olive Foley, who spoke on the theme Family and Faith. Olive is the mother of two young boys and wife of the late Anthony Foley, the Munster rugby coach who died suddenly in his sleep at the age of 42 in 2016. Olive is an ambassador for the Children's Grief Centre in Limerick, which offers support services for children who've lost a loved one. Again, we'll play a piece of music by the Maranatha singers entitled The Worship Song. And just to remind listeners that the recordings of all the ceremonies during the Divina at Knock, and indeed all ceremonies held in the Basilica at Knock, are available on the Knock Shrine YouTube channel. The scriptures point out to us something very <clears throat> important today that if something we lose something or more importantly we lose someone very close to us it grieves us deeply if you take for example Nora Corrin whose remains were found just a couple of days ago in Malaysia I think there isn't a heart in this country indeed all over the world that didn't go out before her remains were found that wished she would be found and can you imagine the distraught nature of her poor parents at this time, coming to terms with that in a foreign land, not knowing the language or the local customs and culture and all the rest, coming to terms with that alone is something, but having lost somebody like that, it cuts to the core, cuts to the quick, and it makes you realize what is so important. And here we have our Lord lost for two days and his frantic parents looking for him, and they find him. And they were so overcome when they saw him. You can take that line. You're so overcome 
when they saw him. You can imagine the relief. You, all you who are parents and grandparents here today who imagine that of your own child. So overcome, and his mother said to him, my child, why have you done this to us? We were looking for you. And then he replied, did you not know I must be busy with my father's affairs? Now, as I always say, if that was an Irish mother, I'm sure he'd get something in the ear for, for, for doing something like that. Some word would be said in the ear uh, for saying something like that. But you can imagine the distraught nature of Mary and Joseph. And then, uh, but the delight again at finding somebody. And that whole nature of someone who was lost and is found. The scriptures are clear with that to us today, that we find our true treasure in looking for the Lord. The Lord helps us to cope at important stages in our lives. That's our faith. He's there with us. He's here with us now. And I suppose to tie in that and to maybe develop this theme of grief, of loss, and of faith, we have as our guest speaker this afternoon, Olive Foley. I'd like to express my gratitude to Father Gibbons for this opportunity to be present here with you today and to stand before you and tell my story. Telling my story is often daunting and it's difficult, but I find that it helps with healing. And I hope that I can give a little light hope to maybe somebody here who's going through difficult, difficult uh, circumstances and might be encouraged or find a bit of inspiration. Uh, being here in Knock today brings back fond memories of my childhood. I was brought up in Scariff in East Clare. My mother and my father and my brothers and my sister who are here today with me would pack up the car, make sure we had enough sandwiches for the day trip to Knock. While as a child I may have indeed taken my Catholic upbringing for granted. It was in my later teens as a boarder in the Presentation Convent in Thurlis that I began to feel a deeper connection with God. My favourite part of the day was daily Mass at 7am. My old school friends would still remind me of my enthusiasm rushing to the school chapel. My faith at this time began to flourish and I began to appreciate my faith and I began to trust in God. My journey took me from school to college and then onto a career in banking where I spent many years traveling all over Munster with Bank of Ireland. I met Anthony in my early 20s. We were married a couple of years later, July 1999. I just celebrated our 20-year anniversary, sadly without him. But I celebrated with our two sons, Tony and Dan, and we celebrated as we, how we thought best. Anthony was better known as Axel. He was a professional rugby player, playing for Munster in Ireland. After a successful playing career, filled with many achievements, Heineken Cup Finals and Triple Crowns. He retired in 2008. He immediately joined 
the coaching team with Munster Rugby until taking up the position of head coach in 2014. On the 16th of October 2016, a day I will never forget, at home, it was a usual weekend for me. I went about my normal day with an air of excitement because Anthony was in Paris with the Munster team. It was the first round of the European Champions Cup and they were due to play racing Metro in the afternoon. But before every game, the players and coaches would meet for pre-match breakfast. Anthony failed to show up for this breakfast, which would have been very out of character for him. But it wasn't until he didn't show up for line-out training after that that the management and team became concerned. Unaware of what was going on, back in Ireland at home with the children, we were having our usual Sunday morning routine. Forevermore, I will never forget what it felt like to hear the news that Anthony had in fact died in his sleep. The moments and hours and days that followed this will be the most devastating and truly heartbreaking moments our families would have to face. I never could have imagined that I would have had to prepare and deliver a eulogy from my husband's funeral mass at age 42. But I spoke about our family life, about our home being a haven for the important things. I believe Anthony had wonderful values and our home with our boys was idyllic. At home in Killaloo, throughout our community and wider, there was a huge affection for Anthony. He was a very ordinary man. He was a big man in a tough game. He always played and coached with heart and passion. He was respected as he went about his business with humility, treating all around him with respect and kindness. Anthony comported himself in such a way that people around him could relate to him. They had a bond with him. And it's fair to say he was an idol to many, but nowhere was he idolized more than at home. As a hands-on dad to our children, he took interest in everything they did and was involved in every aspect of their lives despite his huge workload and commitment to rugby. He touched many lives and I believe he's left a great legacy. I know that many of you here, not all of you, have experienced grief and mine is no greater than any of yours. Losing Anthony created a void in our lives that's simply impossible to fill. It is said that grief is difficult because it is the last act of love. Where there is a great, deep grief, there is a great love. In losing Anthony, I lost my husband, and my confidant, and my best friend. But perhaps the most heartbreaking of all, I lost the father of our two young boys. Tony was just 11, Dan was only eight. During the darkest days after Anthony's death, I found much comfort in my faith. 
I wouldn't like to pretend that there were not moments when I was angry. I was angry at Anthony because he had died. I was angry with God because he'd taken him. But grief is like the ocean. It comes in waves, ebbing and flowing. Sometimes the waters are calm and sometimes so overwhelming that staying afloat is a struggle. But the angry moments are followed by peace and comfort. I always felt God's presence in, my, in many ways, in the support that I got from my family, from Anthony's family, and from my wonderful friends. There was always someone at my door, and I was not afraid to ask for help. I had two grieving children that needed me to be everything for them. They say that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I have proven that this proverb most certainly applies to a grieving family. There was always a lift to the hurling field or to the scout hall or dinner on a friend's table. In the days after Anthony's death, our son Tony came up with a tribute idea for his dad. He would invite people to attend Mass each Sunday from October to Christmas, starting on his dad's birthday, the 30th of October, and invited them to pray for their loved ones who had died and that they may too include their dad in their prayers. So the idea was formed and the Facebook page set up and the news began to spread. It was hashtag eight masses for number eight. And the number eight holds a very special meaning in our family. Uh, Anthony wore the number eight jersey playing for club, province and country. But that eight masses tribute reached over 160,000 people in over 500 countries worldwide. We were propped up with support from around the world, joining us in prayer. The messages of love and the support and the volume of hope was a privilege that we were no more entitled to than anyone else who has lost a loved one. But I believe that all this was God's work reminding us that he is with us. In the face of such great loss or adversity, it is easy to lose faith and to doubt your beliefs. But this comes from a place of deep sorrow. The pain we feel can indeed make us question. But I really truly believe we experience God's work through all the kindnesses, through the people that come to your side and simply say, I am sorry for your loss. Before Anthony's death, I could never have imagined being able to come here and speak to you. In the face of awful tragedy, I have discovered another possibility in life. His death has opened up a door, and this may give me the strength to maybe help others even in the smallest of ways. This is an unexpected, yet comforting outcome. It has been almost three years now since Anthony died. God didn't promise us a world without pain or suffering. But he did promise us strength for the day and comfort during our sorrow and light along the way. And I'm very grateful for that.
It's lovely being here. And thank you very much for listening to me.